Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. What an amazing way to begin a subject of the resurrection. This is reminding them of the gospel. In fact, you might even say the whole chapter is about the gospel and the complete entire effects of the gospel, which the end result of the gospel is the resurrection. You believe the gospel, you'll be resurrected. That's the end point and purpose of the gospel. Notice how he reminds the church, Christians, who are supposed to have already believed the gospel. He's repeating the gospel that saved them in their ears. This is certainly why we here try to constantly repeat gospel truths to those that know it so well that you may grow to know it better, have a fuller, deeper understanding of that gospel that saves you. For Paul tells the Corinthian church that they stand on that gospel. It is the stability of your Christianity will be based on your understanding of the gospel. There are those who blow like a leaf on the wind. These are people that have no tradition, no confession of faith, rather sit in judgment on the scriptures, and all too often get swept up with every wind of doctrine and fad of theological teaching. We all know people like that. If you've been around churches for any length of time, you know people that are blown this way and that way. Do any time on the, on the internet, theological forums, people get swept up in theological fads. It's not a good sign to be caught up the latest theological fad. But rather your life should be built upon a solid, unmovable rock, a foundation that causes you to stand against the wind and not get carried away with it. That's why Paul's going to so hammer the gospel here to the Corinthians. Verse 2, By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Notice that Paul begins with Jesus Christ in his work. And then he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So what is the authority that Paul is appealing to? Is he appealing to dreams and visions? Did God come down and deliver him a book? No, he received something. He received the gospel according to the scriptures. You cannot separate the gospel from the scriptures. You cannot separate the resurrection from the scriptures. He died for our sins as a substitute. He died to make an atonement as the scriptures thoroughly teach. He died under covenantal obligations. He was covenantally obligated to die in our place. That is his part in the covenant of redemption. The gospel was revived in Europe under the Reformation because the word of God revived and spread all across Europe by Gutenberg's printing press. It was the word of God that not only infected and possessed the heart of Luther, but also the hearts of thousands and thousands that read the word of God for themselves and were converted. Romans 1.16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Now let me ask you a very sober question. Why are you saved? Why are you a Christian? Why do you believe the Word of God? The reason you're a Christian, for those of you who are, you're a Christian because the Word of God has power of itself. The Word of God has the very power of God. 
You can't separate the power of God who created the universe and gives us and governs the universe in His providence, that God in whom we live and move and have our being and preserves us on a moment-by-moment basis. That's a pretty powerful God to preserve the entire universe, every moment of this universe's existence. All that same power is invested in the Word of God. You believe because God has done a work upon your soul. The truth of the gospel, whether you're reading a gospel track or hearing a gospel sermon, it was gospel truths that gripped your soul to make you say, I want to believe this. I want to conform my life to this. I want to serve this God. I want this redemption. So the gospel has the power of God. And that power is invested in the scriptures. We'll deal with that here in a second. Verse 5, And he was seen of Cephas and then of the twelve. And after that he was seen above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James and then of all the apostles. Last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. Very interesting how he adds some authority of an eyewitness testimony to the authority of the gospel. Doesn't really mean much to us today because we can't go back and interview these 500 brethren, can we? We can't go and compare their stories to see if they all tell the same story. I mean, it doesn't mean a lot to us today. But if you think about it, without this eyewitness testimony, Christianity would have been proven false in the first century. The critics and haters of Christianity could have easily have disproved it if it wasn't for eyewitness testimony. But instead, those that saw the resurrected Lord were willing to die rather than deny what they saw. The Word of God does use evidence as a reason for men to believe, but the Word of God does not rely on mere evidence. This is something very important to understand. It does not rely on the ability of the human soul to reason. The authority of the Word of God has no authority above it to submit to, not even your reason and logic. There is nothing that can authenticate the Scriptures because the Scriptures themselves are the ultimate authority. There is no authority over the Scriptures because the authority of the Scriptures is the very authority of God and there is no authority over God. The Scriptures don't need proof. They don't need evidence. They don't need reason. As we just read, they have power of themselves. It is the power of God unto salvation. And God needs no help, needs nothing else in His own power. God can move in power where and how He wants. And to the effect He wants. And if He wants to save you, that Word of God will reach out, grab you, and save you. You think Martin Luther went through what he went through just for the fun of it? Because his soul was held conscious, captive to the Word of God. The Scriptures were not made reasonable so that man can understand it. Rather, man was made reasonable so that he can understand the Scriptures. The Scripture is the ultimate authority, and as such, there can be nothing it can appeal to. Yes, there is evidence to believe. Yes, the Gospel is logical. But the Word of God has power to seize the soul and breathe new life in it. Everybody ready for a homework assignment? Here's your homework assignment for everybody in here. Okay, you girls writing this down? Go home and read Ezekiel chapter 37. What I want you to do is tell me how much evidentialism and logic Ezekiel used in raising the valley of dead bones to life. The gospel that you believe is a gospel that can breathe life into a pile of dry bones. 
We're going to take a sinner like you and convert you and set you on the straight and narrow. The gospel is a powerful gospel, and a powerful gospel is a gospel that you can stand on. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you a powerful gospel, which I preached unto you, which ye also have received, and wherein ye stand. You stand on a powerful gospel. Last week in the second service, I made the point that the security of a sovereign gospel allows you to serve the Lord with gladness. And you look at the worksmonger. You look at those who say they can lose their salvation. And you tell me, in your honest opinion, when you really look at it, how, many, how much joy do these people really have? How could you have a joy in a gospel that says at any moment, any one of us, no matter how much we believed, no matter how much good work, how many good works we've done, how much, how long we've lived the Christian life, that we could lose our salvation and go to hell anyway. Where's the joy in that gospel? How can you serve the Lord with gladness if you have a gospel that says even the very best of Christians stand on the brink of hell any moment? Well, I'm going to jump up and down for a gospel like that. A gospel that might save you if you do A, B, and C good enough even though you're, you'll never be sure what A, B, and C are. You'll never be sure of uh, the works that are necessary to secure your salvation. Just You just go ask some worksmonger. Somebody that says you can lose your salvation. Exactly what you have to do and how much you have to do it to stay saved. And see what kind of logical answer they give you. If you can lose your salvation and you might end up in hell, how firm a foundation is that? How can you shout hallelujah at a gospel that says you might go to heaven if you believe enough and if you have enough good works to perfect your faith? Well, hallelujah for that. But when you compare that to the biblical understanding of a gospel that actually and genuinely saves and that Jesus Christ will save his people and he will not lose any of them and has he promised in John chapter 6 that he will raise you up on the last day. That's a promise. And if he doesn't raise you up, then he's a liar. That's a gospel that makes you be able to serve with joy. That's a firm foundation you can live your Christianity on and withstand the storms of life. I used the illustration last week, a very popular illustration, of the college professor who gave his students an A at the beginning of class and said, now let's enjoy our studies. Jesus took your test for you and aced it, so now you get the joy of serving the Lord with gladness. As Paul's about to delineate here, as he's looking back on his life, and he says, Last of all, you have seen of me also as one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles, and am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. This certainly shows the importance of the nature of the church. Paul's not being overly humble here. There's a reality of what Paul says here when he says he's the least of all the saints. Because he persecuted that which God loves. He persecuted the very body of Christ. It shows the importance of the nature of the church. The church is the body and the bride of Christ. Christ loves the church and cherisheth her. Do you love what God loves? Do you love what God loves to the degree God loves? Can you say you cherish the church? Do you love the church? Would you give yourself for her? He's thinking about all the terrible things he did to the church dragging men and women and children off to prison, compelling them to blaspheme? Can you imagine torturing somebody till they break down and blaspheme their Savior due to weakness of the flesh? And be glad of it. I'm serving God, making these 
women and children and men blaspheme Christ by torturing them. Verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. No, there's not a, almost any difference in the conversion of Paul and your conversion. Is what's pretty dramatic. It was done on purpose for dramatic effect. It was done to show the power of the gospel and the power of God to save. But it's that same power that touched your hearts, that turned you to the gospel. And it's that same grace, that same power that keeps you in the gospel. I am what I am now in this day after many years of being a Christian. I am what I am by the grace of God. Paul was going to kill Christians. And then he became one. How do you explain that by the power and grace of God? How do you explain that? I've literally heard preachers try to explain it by saying that, well, Paul really didn't want to do what he was doing and he was pricked in his conscience and he was kind of debating on it. I don't know about you, but if you're going to go kill somebody, I doubt that you're really contemplating joining up with them. Look at the attributes of God's grace that we find in verse 10. Number one, it was bestowed. It was given to him by grace. Paul attributed no synergy. Paul attributed nothing of himself to be redeemed. He went from a persecutor to an apostle. Whatever, whatever he was, he was by the grace of God. Whatever good he had came from God's free grace alone. I am what I am by the grace of God. Number two, it was not in vain. Perhaps he caught the warning there in 1 Corinthians in uh, verse 2 about potentially believing in vain. Was Paul meaning that uh, you can believe to the saving of your soul, but if you mess up really bad, then one day it will be all in vain and you'll end up in hell? But Paul was smart enough and spiritual enough after his conversion to make sure that his salvation that God gave him wouldn't be in vain? Because you'd hate for your salvation to be in vain, wouldn't you? No, certainly not. Even though he is certainly connecting salvation with believing. I can say that if you leave off believing that you will indeed leave off your salvation. For you are connected to Christ and his saving power, saving from sin, and is covering you with his righteousness by faith. And if you leave off faith, you leave off your connection with Christ and his atonement and righteousness. Thus you will have no salvation. And there are many that start up a faith and leave off faith, isn't there? This church has experienced several temporary believers who now have no credibility to any kind of faith they once professed. So did, did these people leave off salvation? Well, in a real way, you can say, yes, they left a salvation. And if they would have continued to believe, they would indeed be saved. For he that believeth on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. But let me ask you, how do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Haven't we been talking about a powerful gospel that grabs your soul, that infects your soul, that raises you from the dead? You, believe, you become a, a Christian just the same way Paul became a Christian. And whatever you are, you are by the grace of God. The fact that there is a God-given believing does not preclude that there is also a human-generated believing. There is a believing that does not originate from the work of God upon the soul. 
So what he is doing is encouraging those. And how God keeps you believing, how God exudes his spiritual gospel power to keep you in faith, is he uses means, the word of God, his spirit working and keeping your soul. He uses warnings and threats. If you leave off believing, don't leave off Jesus Christ. Read the book of Hebrews. Lots of real, genuine threats against apostasy. Lots of promises. Those are means he uses to keep the Christian in a true, genuine faith. Because he began that faith and he'll finish that faith. He'll complete that work he began in you. But if it's a work that is not begun by God, that is begun, begun by your own mind and thoughts on it, then the strength behind it is a carnal, fleshly, human strength. And that's not going to last. The carnal man can't endure spiritual things for long. He can take up a semblance of it, a form of it, but in the end will deny the power of it. Whereas the Christian who perseveres, perseveres how? Well, the same way the Apostle Paul persevered, by the grace of God. That this grace that was bestowed upon him, that it is not in vain, that it leads to good works. Paul's grace that God had upon him led to good works. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm sure most of you know where I'm going with this. This is a very uh, solid verse for understanding the nature and connection of good works and the grace of God in salvation. The grace of God leads to good works. Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the free gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, look here, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. You see the complete connection. There's a, a total, a complete salvation. God, through His sovereign grace, ordained that we should have faith. God then, with that same power, also ordained that we should work out that God-given faith through the works that He Himself ordains. God ordains not only your faith, but your good works that accompany that faith by sovereign grace. This is done by the power of God alone. Paul says that he lab His labors were not in of Himself. Look again at verse 10. Look, Turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's read verse 10 again with Ephesians chapter 2 in mind. Let's get the full import of what Paul is saying here. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. He was the hardest working apostle. Now notice there, what, what does Paul say about his laboring and his working? How, much, how he was the hardest working apostle, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. His abundant laboring was not from himself. It was not self-generated. Paul had no idea of, oh, well, if it's to be, it's up to me. Rather, Paul attributed both his salvation to grace and his works to grace. So how could you have any kind of doctrine, any kind of gospel that might lead you to hell at the end or doesn't completely save? If everything associated with salvation, your justification and your sanctification are secured by the grace of God. And you can trust this. Let me just ask you a question. If you could exchange God's grace in sanctifying you, in preserving you a Christian, 
for your own free will, would you, would you take that? Would you want to try to preserve yourself by your own free will? By your own righteousness? By your own ability to stay believing and, and be faithful? Would you want to exchange that with God? Do you trust God with your sanctification? You trust the Scriptures that God will sanctify His people. Or are you not so trusting of God? Or you think if, well, if I don't have my, my free will in this, then uh, I might lead to licentiousness. I might loose, loosen the reins of my lust, as the Catholics like to accuse Luther of promoting. But that's not the salvation Paul is talking about in his own life. The free grace that saved him led him to abundantly labor. And I can tell you this, being in many churches all over the country, sovereign grace people are no less sanctified than anybody else. We're no more holy. We have all the same struggles everybody else does. But taking away the grace of God in sanctification doesn't make you holy. Threatening Christians with going to hell if they don't keep their act straight doesn't make them any more holy. Go look at the uh, I don't know United Pentecostals, for example. Are they really any more sanctified than we are? They're a lot more noisy. They're a lot more silly. But uh, as far as holy living, are, are they any more holy than us because they believe you might end up in hell if you mess up bad enough? No. God, through His sovereign grace, ordained the works that we should have. The work, the power, the energy that Paul had toward his laboring was not within himself, but it was the grace of God that was in him. And he attributes this, and look at verse 11. You see how that thought flows into verse 11, and we attribute everything to God. Verse 11, Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believe. Because Paul knows that their believing the gospel in Corinth was not because he was so smart when he established the church there and spent a number of years there. It wasn't because he was so loving and kind and nice and uh, such a good person. It was because he knew that the power of God was converting the people there. And he totally takes his, his self out of it. So the same way with any true teacher of God. Any true teacher of God teaches you anything. It's not even really the teacher that teaches you. It's the Spirit of God quickening His truth to your heart and mind and soul. I can't teach you anything. I can't teach you a single thing. I can't even teach you that the cover of this Bible is burgundy. You need the Holy Spirit to understand anything and everything. Exact means are not really important as all salvation comes from the Lord alone. And we trust Him to save people. That's why we pray for people, right? We pray for somebody to be saved. Oh, why do you pray for somebody to be saved? Another that you're expressing a trust in God that He has the power to save them. And in that, God is glorified in your trusting Him and in extending that power in salvation. Verse 12. Now if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? All of the graces of God for the Christian were procured by Christ and His work. That work is a total work which includes His righteous life, His obedience to His Father, His submitting to the cross, and His death and resurrection. The hallmark of the work of Christ certainly being the resurrection. 
Paul says here, But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. How much of your Christian life is based upon Jesus Christ? How much of your righteousness does God take into account? Well, apparently here, if Christ didn't do His part, if Christ didn't raise from the dead like He said, like He promised, like He covenanted to do, then it doesn't matter what you do. God takes no account, no stock of whatsoever. What you do, everything you do is vain. If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Well, you believe on somebody raised from the dead who really didn't raise from the dead, so what? It's very popular today to emphasize the resurrection in Christian apologetics, even at the cost of Scripture. So, believe in the resurrection, uh, even if you don't want to believe in anything else. You know, if you don't believe in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you know, if you don't want to believe in a worldwide flood or in talking snakes and talking donkeys and walking on water and all that, and, you know, Jesus got this deal, uh, 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 this wrong about science, or, you know, I mean, Jesus was just a man. He had ignorance too, but, uh, but I believe he rose from the dead. Though, literally. Preachers that have 30,000 members in their church. Men that have written books and books and books on defending the Christi and defending Christianity. Literally say, well, you can ignore most of what the Bible says, but just really believe in the resurrection. And then after you believe in the resurrection, we'll work on this other issue. But Jesus died and rose again how? According to the Scriptures. So if the Scriptures can be broken, how can you have any confidence in the supposed resurrection of the one that said the Scriptures cannot be broken? Also note here that of itself, for as much as we extol the virtues of faith, of itself faith has no virtue before God. Faith is not that one good work that God is looking for to save you. I've heard people have ideas like that. Well, that the one thing you have to do is have faith and then God will save you. The totality of your righteousness, the totality of your salvation is in Jesus Christ. From beginning to last, from your first initial regeneration to your resurrected bodies out of the grave. It is in Jesus Christ. And if He didn't do what He said He did, and if He is not who He says He was, who He was prophesied to be, then it really doesn't matter what you do. That's what Paul is going to end up saying here. Verse 15. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, of whom He raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. All the Christians that have gone before us, they're dead and gone. There is no resurrection of the dead, and you will all perish. Christianity is false and there is no God, then religion is vain. If evolution is true, then we must have mental problems for believing in some invisible deity. We must have a form of insanity. Then why not just kill all of us crazies like the communists did by the millions? That was a legitimate excuse they had. Well, there's no God. You people believe in this invisible thing, God? You must be crazy. There's something wrong with you. You're a, a, a pest to society, and to have a good society, we've got to get rid of our pests and get, get rid of our mentally unstable population. Why not? Or we'll just kill you. 
And they did by the millions, tens of millions. Because you're just a series of chemical reactions. There's no resurrection. There's no judgment. There's no God. If in this life also only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Most miserable because we're wasting our time denying ourselves rather than indulging the flesh. I mean, there's lots of stuff that's kind of fun for the for a moment that we don't do because we have our eye on something in the future, don't we? We have our eye on something we've never seen, on some someone that's invisible to us now. We're denying ourselves all sorts of pleasures because we know in the end all those things will not be pleasurable and we'll regret every one of you. Many of you Christians now have done a lot of stuff you regret and you wish you could just go back and just have never done that. Sitting there wasting our time trying to be holy. Verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. First fruits were, was the first portion of the harvest that was dedicated to the temple. And it was an indication of a larger harvest coming. Jesus raising from the dead is the first of a large number that will also rise from the dead. Then he again enters into Christ's federal headship. And we'll get into that in the 1689. We're not going to get into it this week. But next week, we're going to look again at how Adam was the federal representative, the covenantal representative of the whole human race. And one of the verses we use to establish that fact is right here. Verse 21, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. That's why the incarnation was a necessity. For as in Adam, all die. That's why you can't be saved by works. I just wish I could get to people and say you can never be proclaimed righteous by your works because you were proclaimed guilty before you were even born. You were proclaimed guilty in the Garden of Eden. The death sentence was already enacted upon you and all you wait is for the death sentence to be enacted. You're guilty in Adam. If not, explain this verse to me. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. How are you in Adam? In Adam by natural generation. The whole human race was in Adam. Now let me ask you, don't get mixed up by this, so all shall be made alive. Is Christ going to make everybody resurrected to eternal life? Well, no, there's going to be people in hell, right? So obviously this all is a different all. It's all those that are in Christ. And how are you in Christ? You're in Christ by being given to Him of the Father. You're in Christ by faith. And that faith is the gift of God given to you. So all those in Christ will be resurrected, just like all those in Adam will die. Now, as we come to the end of the sermon, I want to do something here. This is a series on eschatology, and we're getting to some eschatology. Now, let's count the number and order of the resurrections here in verse 23. We're going to count the resurrections in this foundational passage on the resurrection. But every man in his own order, that is, to be made alive. Christ the first fruits, that's one resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ himself, he's the first fruit. And afterward, they that are Christ at his coming, then cometh the end. There's the second resurrection. Christ was the first resurrection, then everybody at the end time when he comes is the second resurrection. That's, I count one, two resurrections. One, two. I don't think any, if you can find any more than two in this passage, do come show me. Then cometh the end when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, 
when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his foot, under his feet. See the connection here, what is connected with the resurrection, the timing of the resurrection, and the timing of the works of God in human history. When he comes to make us alive, that what will he also do? He'll put all enemies under his feet, and he'll put down all rule and authority. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath for he hath, he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him, and when all things shall be subdued unto him. So first of all, let us note three things. Number one, Christ is ruling, verse 25, for he must reign. He is ruling now from heaven, from on his Father's throne. But there's, secondly, that there's a fullness that has not yet come to that reign. There's a completeness to that reign that is not yet. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And, and uh, look there in 27. But all things are, uh, but he saith all things are put under him. It is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. All things are not yet under him, including death. When death is subdued, what is there left but life? And in the resurrection, death will be subdued. In that resurrection, when he comes, he will subdue death, deliver a kingdom of living, resurrected saints to his Father. And he will subdue all things under him. There's a rule to Christ that is not yet. This is a future reign of Christ. This is that world to come where he will reign in, in a different form than he is reigning now. All things are not subdued unto him. One thing, one day all things will be subdued unto him. That, and that fullness culminates with the death of death. Along with that is death and its antecedents of sin will be eliminated in that future state. Because you can't have sin and not have death also. God has promised that. That time has not yet come. We see death all around us. We see sin all around us. Though Christ is ruling and reigning, is a sovereign Lord over the entire universe, there are yet many things placed under His feet, but we are waiting for all things to be placed under His feet. Not that He is trying to get control of them, but that He is merely allowing a time of rebellion before He puts it completely down. We will end with this. There is a surety to this coming reign. Let's listen to the eschatology of a demon. Demon eschatology found in Matthew eight twenty nine. Talk about a good ground for you to stand on, the absolute security of Christ's victory over sin, demons, death is solid ground for you to build your Christian life on. Listen to the eschatology of a demon, Matthew eight twenty nine, and behold they cried out saying what have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Those demons know, knew that there's a time coming when the Son of God will not allow the devil and his minions to roam free, causing their death and destruction, but will bound them in chains of torment and darkness forever. They know there's a time coming when God will put his heel on them when he will destroy them and cast them into outer darkness. Notice how Paul connects these events. 
of the suppression of sin. He connects the elimination of death and the resurrection and he makes them one event. He comes, he resurrects the dead to life, and the end subdues all things, even death, under his feet. Then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. That's going to happen at the resurrection. That's the beginning of eschatology. That's the culmination of the works of God. That phrase there, that God may be all in all, ought to be your foundational understanding for everything in the future, for that world to come. It's not going to be about Jerusalem. It's not going to be about temples and Jews and sacrifices and reestablishing the Old Covenant. How much better is God being all in all than reestablishing the Old Covenant? How much better is Christ putting down the demons, casting them where they belong, than sacrificing of bulls and goats and pigeons and oil mingled with wine and blah, blah, blah. So we have glorious, completely successful future where Christ will rule and reign in fullness, when death will be destroyed, when there will be no sin. And we will have nothing but eternal life ahead of us. That's worth waiting for. That's worth worth being enduring persecution for, as Paul's going to get to, and we'll get to next week. Let's pray.